The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham SC. My name's Sammy James and welcome to the show. Going to be a bit of a downbeat one today. After a third defeat in five to the Foxes at Craven Cottage, left Fulham eight points adrift of safety in the Premier League. It's not so much a hill to climb, but maybe more of a mountain if Fulham are to stay in the top flight. Results really not going our way. And on Wednesday, it was a poor performance coupled with a poor result this time. Uh, Here to discuss what happened on Wednesday night and look back at Fulham's deadline day activities, which weren't great to say the least, is Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. And Fulham writer for The Athletic, Peter Rutzler. Hey, Sammy, how you doing? Yeah, fine, thank you. Um, let's get straight to it, Jack, with some three-word reviews from Wednesday night's defeat to Leicester. Uh, a dispiriting one, and uh, I imagine that'll be reflected in the reviews that came in. Yeah, no, I think one of my favourites was was Tom Ford's Brendan Rogers Parker. Um, Louis, <laughs> w- Louis Wishlade with Justin, we're relegated. Fulham transfers, white flag up. Stephen Barnett, for Fox's sake... Louis Farmer with Fox's feeble foe and Sammy Finesilver with lacking when attacking. Well, that's very good. I like that last one. Um, I'm easy to please when it comes to three red views. Make it rhyme or make it alliterate and I'm um, I'm always pretty game. Um, Peter, you were there last night and what was the mood like after full time at the cottage? Um, it was pretty flat, maybe bordering on angry on Twitter, but what was the mood like at the cottage? Yeah, quite angry on, on Twitter. Um, frustration, uh, especially second half, I think. Um, just Fulham didn't, weren't able to land any punches, really. Uh, I think by, by that time, the game was pretty much done in any case. Um, I felt the first half was pretty tight. I didn't think it was... I think the, the fundamental difference was the quality between the two teams. Uh, Fulham still were lacking in the attacking third. I don't, I don't think Mitrovic had a good first half. I don't think he was used in the second half when he really when Fulham really should have used him a lot more. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the atmosphere, uh, a little bit more frustrated the first time you see those little bits of frustration, you know, a little bit, you know, shouting between the players and which you can understand you're two nil down and you're trying to, to break down a really stubborn Leicester defence who were very, very good. Um, I just I just think in the second half, it, w- it became a case of Fulham taking too long, one too many passes. I think when you're facing a stubborn block like they did, you've got to use your, your best asset, and which was Mitrovic on the pitch. And they, it would always be a long ball too late for me. It would always be a, a case of, right, let's play. Can we play through the lines? It's not working. We're not, we're not finding the space between them right now. Let's hit Mitrovic. And then when they do hit it, it's not the best opportunity or it's looking for the very best opening, the very best moment to try and go direct, get that flick on, get, get one of the wingbacks in behind. Um, and that was probably the most concerning thing. I don't think we've really seen that too much from Fulham. Um, but, you know, I, as I mentioned, you know, I was very, very impressed with Leicester, just how ruthless they were, the quality they had in the final third. I thought James Madison was fantastic. Um, and that, that made the difference, really. Uh, a frustrating result. It's, I think it's all the more frustrating because of because of the last couple of games against uh, West Brom and Brighton. I think it heightens it massively. Jack, 
it's it's very easy for us on this podcast to really delve into the minutiae of Fulham's performances, the tactics and the structure, etc. But it, I, the way I looked at that first half yesterday, it's simple a case of Fulham don't take the chances that come to them, the good chances that came come to them, and and, and Leicester, as as Peter said, were just ruthless, and it ended up two 0 at half time. But it very easily could have been 2-2 if, if Mitrovic sticks away the chance, which I think for a striker of his pedigree is an easy chance. And then that free header from Tosin, again, just not good enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I come, I keep coming back to the fact that those are the two chances and I agree. And, and, and someone said, you know, you look at Park and you can criticise the tactics all you want. But, you know, if the players don't take the chances they, you know, they're creating, then then, you know, he can't be blamed for that. And I, I think there is an element of that. I think it's similar with the West Brom game. You look at the second Bobby Reed chance, if that goes in, then maybe it's a completely different game. Maybe Fulham don't give up the advantage, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we're, we're a team that isn't clinical, right? We're not, not, not clinical to the lack of, say, Brighton are not clinical, but we're, we're not clinical. The thing with Brighton is they create so many chances at the moment that eventually one of them is going in. Uh, and I don't think that's the same with Fulham. If Fulham aren't clinical, and, and that's something, and it's something that right now we have to look at and go, okay, like you say, a Mitrovic isn't taking a chance that you'd imagine he would be taking. Like Tosin's header is is a good save, you know, but they're the only two real chances that I can think of. You know, they're the two two opportunities of note over the entire 90 minutes. And if Fulham aren't being clinical, then they need to create more because that's how you you improve on that aspect. It's not about just suddenly suddenly becoming extremely clinical. Yes, Leicester were, but ultimately there was more saves and more work for Ariola to do than there was for Schmeichel. And, and, and that's, you know, yes, as, as Peter says, due to the fact that they are a, a very good side and they deserve credit. And there's no shame in losing to a Brendan Rodgers side. What I do think is that Fulham have no sort of capacity to wrest the game into our favour. And I think we've seen that time and time again now we, we struggle to to impose ourselves upon games and create patterns in the final third which create chances and all of those things put together mean that Fulham are now an incredibly frustrating watch if Fulham go one behind you know if, if the if the opposition score the first goal of the game we may as well turn it off it, it feels like that yeah. it, it feels like that every time and you look at Parker's record and you can be massively impressed from Parker's record from in front yeah and and you can say in in two separate statements that both are right you know that Parker's record when he's in front is extremely good and should be praised Parker's record when he goes behind is dismal and should be criticized and you can be at both of those ends well I had that um last year in covering Bournemouth it's exactly the same thing if you can see those vulnerable weak goals it's so difficult but I don't I don't think that's just a Fulham thing it's generally in football very difficult to come from behind anyway to win games especially I, I just think and Fulham have shown a capacity to do it the first time they did it they did it against Tottenham um, come from behind and, and still took a point I, I, I think with with chance creation I'm going to throw some some numbers at you again do it like they're they're ninth for, chance, for chances created per 90 at the moment this season and then obviously chance creation is fine you don't know the quality of them but then you look at expected goals which is quality of chances created it's 13th that, that's pretty damn good really that's not far behind Brighton um, and it's quite clearly making the difference for me in those moments if you're not taking them you're going to make yourself vulnerable against teams that definitely will take them like, like Leicester City Fulham averaging at the moment more chances created than Leicester um, obviously the difference is, is who's taking them um, 
I, I do think the last 30 minutes of that game really coloured perception of the game as a whole. I don't think I don't think the game was as dominant. I mean, fundamentally, Fulham had control of possession. I just the one concern I had was what they did with it. Yes, and and part of that's excusable because it's playing Leicester in a block, and that's very difficult. But it was just the decision making, and that's the the slowness of of build up play, knowing what to do. Like you've got Mitrovic up front, you had lost his cheek in there as well. These are two big players. You've got to get they've got to get the ball into the box. You've got to turn them around, facing the other way. And I think there was a real reluctance to do that. And for me, that's a sign of the pressure, just a little bit. You know, this sense of right, okay, we need we need to do something. But am I making the right choice? It's second guessing yourself. Maybe there was an element of that in the first half too, because Fulham's joy was coming through the wing backs. You know, Anthony Robinson. I know he made the mistake for the, the opening goal, but he was getting so much space. And when Fulham are at their best, they're sharp and they switch the play really well. You know, with Anderson and Adarabayo, their 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 ball playing ability is so good. It's really good for centre halves, and I just feel they didn't use that enough. They didn't open the, their bodies up. They didn't switch the play enough just to get that Leicester side moving. Um, I mean, you're so right on the the fact that the pressure really was building in that final half hour. The amount of wayward crosses, there was one that really stuck out for me. I think Loftus-Cheek, it was a nice little bit of interchange between him and, and I assume Anthony Robinson down the left-hand side got to the byline. And the cross went out of play behind the byline. And, you know, he, he's not the only one. And, and I don't want to be here just on... RLC's back but the amount of overhit crosses from Aina and you look at the cross that led to that opening goal Jack from Madison it was sharp it was instinctive it was quick it was it caught Fulham off the hoof and actually I think that's that's a little bit almost a sign of what Fulham aren't doing was just someone that had a bit of imagination bit of quick thinking and it leads to a goal and so often Jack we're seeing a lot of what we saw last season and everyone called it Parker ball and kind of rightly so just trying to pass and pass and pass and pass your way towards goal and ultimately you get to around the 18 yard box and especially against defense the quality of Leicester it just fizzles out and that's why you're missing a player like Tom Kearney right who who is able to actually pick up the ball in those areas and play the incisive pass who's able to kind of operate between the lines and and make sure that things can happen in the final third and and, and there is that to be considered right that the Parker is missing his only true 10 to who would play that role that would try and link things in the final mm-hmm. third and make those intricate moments happen. But with that said, it feels like we, it, it feels Peter, and I don't know if this is tallies with what you're thinking, but it feels like we played the entire second half in front of Leicester. You know, there, yeah, there was yeah, no, yeah. there was no incision. And, and, and this is what I'm on about, about patterns. Right. And, and I think this season, when, when you look at the teams that have been consistent, right, you, you list, and, and I go to City with this because obviously City, I think, are the best team in the league, if not in Europe at the moment. And City aren't always brilliant, but they have these patterns that they play and they fall back into when things aren't going their way. And it allows them to open teams up, even if it's a, a string of three, four pass and move you know, plays that, that you can see that have been rehearsed on the training ground. And I've just seen none of that from Fulham in an attacking sense. You know, it seems to be a kind of release the fullbacks and go for it. It is kind of the the only the only kind of weapon in the arsenal or give the ball to Addy Lookman and hope he creates something. And and I don't think that's enough currently to be keeping Fulham in the division because it's not breaking teams down. I I disagree slightly. I can see what Fulham are trying to do. It's what they sort of did last year a little bit. I haven't seen enough of last year to be absolutely certain, but it's very clear that they tried to work one side of the flank, take the ball out and then switch it. And they weren't doing that well enough yesterday, I don't think, especially first half. And then in the second half, 
when the questions were asked, when you're, you've got a low block, you need, you need something to change. You need to mix it up a bit. And they didn't cope with it very well. And for me, a lot of that is now pressure. And I feel that that's the thing that's going to keep building. If you're going to go behind, it plays on your mind. It's if we need to score, we need to win, we need to do this. And it's how you cope with that. And it becomes very difficult. Um, but you're right in the, the fundamental point about having set patterns. I think the, the, one of the best teams for that is Brighton as well, yeah. especially in the same area of the table. They have very clear set patterns in where they play. They're consistent with it. They don't, they're not deterred when they don't score the goals that their football deserves. Um, to, if we're being realistic, Brighton really shouldn't be where they are on the table. Like right. They're a very good team. Um, and maybe I, I, I think there's definitely a case to say that, for, for, especially yesterday, they weren't at it in terms of the way they want to play, the way they break teams down. And yeah, I think their fundamentals is using their wingbacks to bring them with and get deliveries into the penalty area. And part of the flaw that's been this season is that those deliveries have not been good enough. They're not using the wing. What was concerning yesterday was that they weren't getting those wingbacks forward enough and really hurting the teams. And you, know, and, and you can't be reliant on Adam Ola-Lutton because he, everyone knows that he's a threat. I think he had that sort of wild card status when he first came in and no one really took him as the threat he would become. And now teams really do pay much more attention to him. So it's a, there's a reliance now on, on others chipping in. And I, yeah, I, look, let's not get away from the fact that the performance wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. I mean, Leicester didn't overrun Fulham yesterday by no stretch of the imagination. They didn't feel like they needed to, though, I don't think. There wasn't, uh, there, it didn't really massively feel like Leicester got out of third gear. And bear in mind, they were missing Vardy, Didi. Fafana, Castagna. Like, I mean, I appreciated Ricardo Pereira is a, a wonderful replacement, but like, you know, this was a Leicester missing three, four first teamers, and they didn't feel like they got out of third gear. They're also the second best away team in the league. So, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. swings and rounds. Um, Jack, you've been crying out for Parker to change the system, particularly dropping the five at the back and going to four at the back and trying to get a few more bodies into the midfield and look yesterday you saw it in the second half Mm. it was way too little too late but you saw Kenny Tete come off Ivan Cavallero come on there was also the change of Van Giesa for Lamina which didn't really change anything in terms of the style what did you make of it did it give you any encouragement going forward that four at the back against teams that aren't you know Man City away is the way to go I didn't uh, look. I, I wouldn't. I think I've been calling for four at the back, especially against the teams around us, right? And and that was my my point that you know the five at the back has served us well in games where we're not going to have the majority of possession. And I, I'm not suggesting we write it off. That's not. That was never my point. My point was that against teams where we needed to win, I feel like we need to impose ourselves a bit more. And and I think in the second half there was no option for Scott but to do it. And interesting that Angisa came off. I thought he was poor first half. I, I don't think he's been the same player quite since recovering from COVID or, or recovering is potentially the wrong word since since going down with COVID because that seems to be affecting him. It's, he seems to be knackered, a little bit gassed all the time. And, you know, you look at him playing in that FA Cup tie against Burnley and uh, you can understand maybe they were trying to play him back into some sort of rhythm. But equally, I think he just looks absolutely shattered at the moment. I'd like to see a three-man midfield with him part of it. Um, because I think that with that, we'd stiffen up that middle and allow us to get ourselves back into transition a little bit more and look at the goal against Leicester in the, you know, in, in the, in the return fixture, the, the, the first goal. And it's Angisa that bursts through the middle, right? Taking on players and releases Lookman. And, and I think that 
perhaps a three in the middle would give him more capacity to to actually do that. Perhaps it would allow him to to look up and and drive a little bit more because I think we've seen I think we've seen him knackered and overwhelmed over the last couple of games. But that said, he hasn't been playing very well either. So it's a bit here and there in that regard. Um, but yes, I, I think I would go. We we didn't look any more vulnerable. I didn't think with four at the back. Although you know, as as said, Leicester didn't really push too hard in the second half. I didn't think it was uh, you know something that we needed to. We looked massively defensively uh, not sound with. So yeah, I would I would push forward with it now that we need to win games. I, I think that you have to take risks now and, and going to a four at the back and putting more def, you know more players and and more <laughs> more options in the attacking third is going to give us something in, in games from the very start. I would I would look to yes to to push on with that and and see if we can develop more and and impose ourselves a little bit more on teams because it's no longer going to be enough to beat the teams around us. We're now going to have to nick some results and and beat some teams bigger than us if we want to stay up in this division. I mean, Peter, the the fixtures has been relentless as well for Fulham. We've had now four midweek games in a row. The only real respite for a couple of players was that FA Cup game against Burnley. But as Jack alluded to, I, I still believe Parker played a few too many regulars in that match. And this is our last midweek now. Well, as it stands until the end of the season, there is a rearranged Burnley game to to stick in there somewhere. And it does just look like across the pitch, Fulham just need a bit of a break because we're we're starting to look exhausted now. And given the pressure that's on us to win games, it's, it's all in all a bit of a horrible situation we find ourselves in. I I think exhausted wouldn't, be particular. I don't think it'd be fair to say. I'd be just be I, when I say fair, not not to Fulham. I mean to the, to the league as a whole. I think you know Fulham they didn't have a two week break. Of course, it was a COVID outbreak, so it's hard to say it was time off because it's not. Um, what I would say is that it's pressure, and that's the the kind. I'm, I've said this earlier in the pod already, but I do feel that once that starts to grow, once that gets in that's when you're looking at getting into the end spiral. You know, Parker himself has said it, he said it last week, pointed out to it and just said, look, we don't want to end up like this. But if you're not winning games and you need to win games and there's an eight-point gap, that's just going to get larger and larger in your mind. And there was something interesting he said yesterday uh, because I brought up the comment, don't die too early, was what what he said before Brighton. I brought it up again yesterday. And uh, he said, yeah, it's really, really important whenever... My demeanor and my message may change in five or six games time if something different, if, if you know, basically if that's me paraphrasing, but that's roughly what he said. Um, and I, just looking at the fixtures now with what West Ham, Everton, Sheffield United, Palace, you know, the, once we get towards the end of the season, the fixtures get really tough again. It becomes the tough run that Fulham have just come out of. And if Fulham then go through this, this period without some wins in there, then you are really looking at a, a different thing. And that's where pressure reaches a high point as well. And, you know, then you're talking proper, proper miracles, I think. So we're all, it's almost like we're getting to that, that crunch point. And it's just for Fulham, it's, it's, it's important. They do maintain that sort of belief, that, that confidence and don't, don't sort of wilt too early because before these fixtures anyway, but I think as more ga- as these games come through, we may see more of that, which seems, I think it seems like exhaustion, but I think it's also mental fatigue because of what, because it because of how it's going, and I don't think we've seen that yet. Because generally the atmosphere has been pretty positive. The, you know, Fulham have lost what three in the last ten, uh, which is pretty good. 
Um, but they haven't got the wins and that's that's what they need because the gap's so, so big. Um, but yeah, that's that's going to be the, the telling thing now, I think, in these yeah. coming games. I just add that I think, you know, you can comp- completely understand what Scott Parker's saying about don't die too early, right? Don't get shot. But it does feel like we're bleeding out a little bit. That that would be my that would be my take on the analogy. It feels like Fulham have been like slightly injured and it isn't enough to to you know to send a man down to personal hospital, but actually it's just like a slow drip that, that Fulham are bleeding out. And unless we kind of staunch that wound quite quickly, it's going to become fatal. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I agree completely. I mean, if you want to read uh, Peter's piece where he refers to that quote, don't die too early and um any of other pieces pieces and i feel like at the moment there's a if you're on twitter there's a lot of hot takes and there's a lot of differing views regarding the whole of fulham right now if you just want a little bit of a, an oasis of calm in the madness then um make sure you you, you sign up to the athletics to, to read pieces pieces and all the other great pieces on the athletic uh, you can get it for less than one pound a week by going to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. All right, after the break, we're going to look back at Fulham's transfer day dealings uh, and get the opinions of Jack and Peter on that. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here and I'm joined by Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. And Peter Rutzler. Hello. Okay, let's have a look back at Monday's transfer deadline. Um... It was an interesting day, Peter, and I guess what you're quickly finding out as the Fulham writer is that cancel all my appointments on transfer deadline day because <laughs> you will be a busy man. <laughs> That's actually really, really spot on. Um, I am learning that, Sammy. I am very much learning that. And also January ones, Joshua King for me, the last two years have been associated with him late into the night. Um, <laughs> uh, and then take the next day off too. Um yeah, uh, another busy one for Fulham. I, you know, I, d- I didn't, I mean, the impression was, and I think, you know, Scott Parker gave, gave that impression too, was that it wasn't going to be busy. Uh, that did change when Bournemouth lowered their asking price for, for King on, on deadline day, which was kind of inevitable, I guess. Um, and yeah, Fulham went from and nearly got him. Um, there was a time late on um, Monday night where we were thinking that maybe they were going to land him, but I don't think it's a surprise that he chose Everton. I mean, when, when you toss the two teams up, one's got Carlo Ancelotti and pushing for European football. Um, this is King. He's always talked about wanting to play European football and he's got European championships coming up. Um, and then, you know, the, the the risk of joining Fulham in, in a relegation fight, it's, you know, that's... It's a, it wasn't. It, it seems like an easier choice on paper, but um, it was. It was unexpected, and you know, you know, a bit bold as well. I, d- I don't think I wasn't under the impression that Fulham were going to do that, um, but they were saw it as a possibility. I think financially, it became a bit more doable with with the lowering of the of the asking price. But did get Josh Madger in, um, which had been rumored for a little while, hadn't it? Um, and it was always sort of implied to me that if they were going to get someone in, just as it looked less likely to get a more senior forward in, it would be someone younger and. I think Josh Madger fits that bill. I think the unfortunate thing for Madger is with the team's form, you wonder how much people will now start saying that he's got to be the difference. And, you know, I, I don't think he's going to come in and change things. He, he might. I mean, he, he fits that young sort of unproven profile that has done really well for Fulham this year. Um, and if he can come in and score the goals that they're not scoring to take the chances that they're not taking, then fantastic. Um, but yeah, busy night. Uh, in the end, uh, Major was confirmed what, about half past 11, I think. So um, they got a striker in. 
obviously the other side of it is the players that left. Um, uh, Niskin Skibano obviously went to Middlesbrough. Abubakar Kamara went to, to Dijon. He was nearly going, I think he turned down Middlesbrough in the end. Um, and then uh, Maxime Lamartian to, to Antwerp. Uh, I think part of that was was, was straight. And I, I, you know, coming into Parker's pressure on the Tuesday, it was a case of, well, you, you, you've talked long about not having the, the attacking options or specifically a number nine, um, but went into the you know deadline day with, I think maybe it was a five forward, you could say, maybe you could include Bobby, it'd be more. Um, and then coming out of it with one one fewer because of Niskin Skibano and, and Abubakar Kamara going. Um, but you know, Parker didn't really seem plus by that at all. He was actually quite vehement that it was the right decision to do, um, which actually surprised me a little bit. I thought he'd be a bit more, well, we haven't got the same options, but that wasn't really the case. Um, both of them haven't played really, so I guess that, that also comes into it. But um, Do you think there's a chance that Parker's a bit more relieved that at least he hasn't got to manage so many players anymore. You know, he spoke about in September how it was a really difficult situation with four, you know, first team squad players that can't even be selected. Maybe he's just a little bit relieved that behind the scenes, he doesn't have to deal with all these egos who, you know, constantly obviously want to play first team football. And and right now he just cannot deliver it for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's much easier to manage the squad, manage different people's expectations, um, and also give more people minutes. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any any doubt about that. It'll be it'll be happy to have that 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 better balance within within the squad. Um, obviously, the financial side helps too. It's good for the club, but um, yeah, no, I, yeah, there's there's no, there's no doubt about that. I think he'll be pleased to have another another number nine. Uh, maybe that can take some of the heat off Cavalero a little bit as well. I mean, he's, he's he's actually done quite well on balance. It's just the fact that he's not scoring goals and that's really what, what Fulham need. Uh, Jack, your review of, of deadline day, I, I know that you were less than impressed. Yeah, I, I just, it, it all felt a bit panicky to me, um, if I'm honest. And and look, I, I could be completely wrong on this and, and, and Josh Madger might have been someone that Fulham have been tracking for ages. And to be honest, you know how much I love a narrative. The idea of an ex-academy player coming back and, and saving the day at Fulham is something that I'm hugely into as a concept. Um, but it does feel a little bit like we let Seri go to Bordeaux and they were like, oh, Josh Madger's there. He's not that much. <laughs> Maybe he'd come in and do a job. So that's not me saying that he hasn't been tracked. I'm not suggesting in the slightest that, that Fulham have just randomly decided to sign Josh Madger. But I do, there is a, a part of me that thinks, did this come up as as much of, of luck than judgment? But I, I could be wrong there. And, and I'm... Well, Tony Khan said that it was a player that him and Scott had been tracking for a long time, um, to slightly paraphrase what he said in the, in the video. Uh, do you believe that? Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. It just it just feels a bit coincidental that suddenly out of nowhere we loaned Seri to to Bordeaux and two days later we were bringing and you know then rumors started appearing that you know I said it on last week's podcast. I said oh you know if they're we were, we were on the Thursday I was like oh, if we're going for for Bordeaux I think we'll probably have a little look at Josh Matter. He's there. He hasn't played very much and <laughs> and then all oh, lo and behold a week later he's a Fulham player. So so maybe I'm wrong. Um, but. But, you know, it did feel a bit like, oh, this is this is nice and convenient and might work for us because, you know, it's not like Josh Madger is, has been playing throughout January and suddenly they felt like he was going to be allowed out on loan. I feel like if Josh Madger was going to be allowed out on loan, 
he was going to be allowed out on loan for the entire entire window, which kind of contradicts the whole point about waiting late in windows. And and you and I had this discussion, Sammy, being and doing business on deadline day doesn't really it doesn't affect me as much as it seems to affect other people. Um, but I did get sent quite an interesting thing by by Tristan, who's at Serbian Tennis seventy seven on uh, Twitter uh, about Shard Khan's transfer policy compared to Mohamed Al Fayed's um, and the way the the average dates that they did business. Um, mm-hmm. The average date for summer for Khan is fourteenth of August. It was the second of August for Mohamed Al Fayed. The average date in winter twenty sixth of January for Shard Khan it was the twenty second of January for Mohamed Al Fayed. And the average date versus the league, I thought, was maybe the interesting thing in winter. We do three day business three days slower than the rest of the league, whereas Alfaya did business three days earlier. Now, I don't think that's a, something that will potentially change. You know, I don't think six days swing there is going to make all the difference in the entire world. Um, but I did think it was interesting. I wonder also, I was going to say league position, if that's sort of irrelevant. If you're mid table, you'll become more of an easier prospect and you can maybe be a bit more savvy in your thinking. I think with, with deadline day specifically, it depends uh, what you're actually doing. If if you're overpaying on deadline day, then you're doing something wrong. I think that's you know that's that's quite clearly almost panicky and a bit sort of scrabbling around. If if you're sort of underpaying, then you're using it to your advantage. Um, that's probably how I'd, I'd best assess it. I mean, there are clear drawbacks in terms of not having the squad together, the squad you'd want together earlier. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, that's the case. Um, but then you can maybe get players that wouldn't be available. I mean, Joshua King was the example. I mean, his asking price was, by all accounts, was very high. Perhaps, um, perhaps but, this deadline day will be well. Our deadline day signing will do better than our last led deadline day winter signing in the Premier League. Let's let's hope at least he might get he might get some minutes. I, I mean, I guess there's two arguments to this. I think our sub- dealings in the summer. And the fact we waited to deadline day meant that we got some fantastic additions, particularly at centre-back, by leaving our business late. But I think you raise an interesting point, Jack, that this January, did Josh Madger have to be done on deadline day? And and you look at the situation, he was not really getting that many minutes for Bordeaux. He was brought in on loan. Maybe we'd have had to pay more for the option, but we're already paying a pretty high premium on that, which is reportedly £9 million on, on the option if we want to buy him in the summer. Was that deal impossible at the beginning of January? I, I think you raise an interesting point there because for me, from the outside, it doesn't look like it was impossible, but maybe what we were hedging our bets to see what other strikers we could potentially get in before Josh Madger, which maybe indicates that he wasn't a first choice. Um, Peter, you wrote a good article on Josh. Uh, it was called Josh Madger, the finisher with unfinished business at Fulham. And, and it looks at Josh's career, particularly how he left Sunderland. And, and, and lots of us know all about Josh Madger because we've watched the Sunderland till I die um, and particularly in series two, he was, he was a big star and they followed his narrative a lot, but he moved to Bordeaux and there's that interesting quote where he says, I don't play football for the fans. I play it for myself and my family, which obviously didn't go down terribly well with Sunderland fans. It showed though that at, at its, at his core, you have got a good finisher. And, you know, we saw last night, particularly that chance that Mitrovic got and he, didn't finish off. Clearly Mitrovic's finish has gone downhill. If we can see some of that ruthless side from Josh Madger to stick the ball in the back of the net, 
even if it's only four or five goals, it could, it, it might just be the difference. Yeah, I think I think yeah, Madge's best best attribute is, is his finishing. I think I mean even asking Parker what type of striker he is, he said between the posts, and that, that's kind of what we wanted. And um, I, I think when you when you look at his his goal scoring record in in Bordeaux and you take it based on goals from appearances, I, I think it becomes quite hard to go. Oh, actually, do you know what a finisher really? So, yeah, it's two goals in seventeen from from this season. But then you actually look at his 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 goals to starts. Uh, I think it's about not nine from 20. I need to double check that. And then also his minutes to goals is actually pretty good. It's consistent. So less so this season and, and more so the, the season before where, where uh, Paolo Sosa, the, the Bordeaux manager, used him as a super sub. It's quite in line with his goal scoring record in, in Lee one with, with Sunderland. I think it's like a goal around every 120 minutes, which isn't bad. It's, it's not incredible, uh, but it's, it's pretty good going. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's more than one in one in every two games. So, um, that that he he fits the profile of what what Fulham were looking for. I think it was interesting just learning how those couple of years have have panned out in France. I think obviously we all know about him from Sunderland till I die and brilliant brilliant form. And then obviously went to France and sort of dropped off the radar a little bit. He hasn't pulled up a load of trees. I think that's that's fair to say. Yeah, more, um, more of Bordeaux though. To be fair to them, no, that that's yeah, that's that's absolutely the point. I mean, Bordeaux have changed managers. I think three times since he signed. Um, you know they, they're a team that struggle for goals generally. Um, I'm, I'm last well, when I wrote the piece, it was I think they've scored 26 times from 22 games, which isn't a lot. Uh, they're mid-table in Liga, so it becomes difficult for him to to take chances. And, and speaking to to the people who watched him, I spoke to one French journalist, uh, Nicolas uh, Lagardien from Sud-Ouest uh, newspaper. Um, he he sort of outlined that he is a, a, a finisher. You know that's what he does. He's, he's clinical. Um, his his best errors in the box. He finishes moves. He doesn't necessarily like to be in the sort of build up play for that. And, and part of the issue he had under Jean Louis Gasset this year was that they weren't creating as many chances for him. Um, the season before, he, he wasn't the kind of player who would be involved in that sort of link up play, at least uh, according to his manager. So he wouldn't start matches. Um, you know, statistically, actually, this season especially, when I'm looking at. Um, Smarter Scouts data, which you can which you can see in the piece, um, it actually that's one of his strongest points has been in his build up play. So that sort of maybe pushes against that a little bit. Not that creative though. So I guess that that really does tally um, tally with what what what, what viewers are, are seeing of him. Um, but in the main, yeah, it's not been a straightforward time in in France for him. It's not it's not been an easy period. But he's not he's not been. Poor either. You wouldn't say that his stock has necessarily fallen greatly. I mean, it is a jump from the third tier of English football, top tier in France, and it'll be another jump here. So, you know, drop him in the deep end and, and see if he can he can swim really. And I think that will be the challenge even more so with with Fulham not not scoring goals and and um, needing a goal scorer and not winning make, not winning games. Um, and of course, you know, he's. I think it's interesting that with Magic coming in, he does fit a lot of tick a lot of boxes I know that's a, a common transfer expression with Fulham but um, he does in the sense that obviously he was here before uh, for three years from the age of 11 that helps uh, he'll know the area he'll know he'll know the club adaptability wise it should be easy he's English speaking he's an English player um, Nigerian international sorry but you know he's, he's brought up in brought up in South London so that that really does mean that he can hopefully adapt quickly um, the challenge of course is whether he can can deliver in, in the Premier League and he is unproven and I don't think it'd be fair to say that he's going to be the answer to all of Fulham's uh, goal-scoring problems. 
spot on. Uh, I don't think that Josh Madger is the immediate answer to all Fulham's woes. So I like the profile of this move in terms of what he brings on numbers. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's important just that we don't put too much pressure on a you know a young player who's obviously been brought in to, to help but not necessarily just for this season this is one I think that's been done with with a little bit of the future in mind which is perhaps not what what Fulham fans want to hear really uh, and it and it goes back to the difference between this and the King transfer right the, the Josh King transfer like Peter and I disagree on this and and that's fine um just in terms of of having whether we thought Josh King would be a good addition or not I, I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was a very, very risky move to bring in a player who's admitted that he wants to be a free agent uh, on a on a deal that would would basically mean he'd be a free agent if Fulham got relegated on probably more money than almost the rest of the squad put together. I'm not sure it does great great things for morale to bring in a player be like, oh lads, here's a here's Josh King. He's come in, he's on more than you, and he gets to leave for free if we get relegated, which is actually what he really wants. Um, I'm not sure that's the dressing room morale I would have had, but I mean, there's no arguments that he is a good player. So he's perhaps, you know, Josh Madger is perhaps not the instant impact that you'd maybe think a player like Josh King might have had. But I do think in terms of like a long-term addition, this is probably a more sensible move. I think I think with 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 King, I, I mean you're not wrong in terms of your outline. I mean I, I mean in terms of the the relegation break clause and, and and things like that. I think I mean that does put an interesting spin on it. The, the flip side, of course, is that he's he's definitely got a point to prove, Joshua King, like massively. Um, he's not pulled. He's not done very well, particularly with Bournemouth. He's not sort of carried them in the championship. He's been linked with so many moves, and yet nothing's materialised. And he's not really reflected it. When he was at Bournemouth, he was you know trying to almost you never really got the chance to lead the line properly I think there was one season that they did and Bournemouth got their best ever Premier League finish uh, with Callum Wilson injured but yeah I, I do still feel he has a point to prove after his, his time sort of in, in the wilderness and maybe that would make the difference but you know fundamentally it's, it would have been a risk potentially I think it'd be fair to say that uh, a quick word then on a few of the departures um, there was five in total. It was Stefan Johansson, Maximum Marshall, Abubakar Kamara, John McHale, Seri, and Niskins, Cabano. I think, Jack, it was Kamara and Cabano that probably raised the most eyebrows in terms of departure, particularly for me, because I still believe that Kamara can offer something off the bench it's not often a lot but you saw even at the end of that Spurs game I thought he came on and look he, he should have played Lookman through and we should have won 2-1 but also he came on he was a nuisance he kept the ball he was a useful asset to us at that time particularly now there's a space left in the squad it opens up some interesting questions to see if Fulham want to potentially bring in a, a, a free transfer that I feel there's still a a couple of questions there to be answered regarding some of our departures. Yeah, I agree. Um, obviously, there was the report over the weekend that Kamara refused to warm down after the game against West Brom, which is probably not a great look if it's true. Like, we don't know the veracity of that, so I, I'm not going to comment on it. But it would make more sense as to why he'd been shipped out because I would suggest that Kamara has probably got about as many minutes this season as I was expecting him to get. Um, I don't think he was too shy of of what I was kind of the the impact sub I was expecting him to be. So, so that in in, in that regard, yeah, uh, that that does appear. It doesn't really make sense unless something's changed behind the scenes. And and with that report coming out, things were 
things have been chucked about. So, so I guess there's that. Um, Cabano, obviously, I'm sad to see go because I love Niskins Cabano as much as almost every other Fulham fan does, and probably more. Um, and also, if we get a 93rd minute free kick and we need to win the game against Newcastle uh, to you know to stay up, there is there's only one man I'd have been bringing off the bench to take it. So. So yeah, but look, he's got one minute since September in the Premier League. So, I mean, what what can you do? But when he did get his opportunity against QPR, he came on and took it. I thought so. Yeah, a sad one. I'm sure he'll do he'll do just fine for Middlesbrough in the Championship. I, I still think he's got something to offer, and uh, yeah, I'm sad to see him go. But obviously, Parker didn't see him as part of his plan. So, you know, at least he's going to get minutes somewhere, and and that's good for him and his career. And a potential first game on Saturday against Brentford. And I, I put it in the Fulhamish WhatsApp group. And, I, and I'll say it on here. If he gets a hat trick, I am buying a Middlesbrough shirt with Cabano on the back. And I will wear it proudly uh, for, for the rest of this year. Um, Jack, any thoughts on, on the potential space in the, uh, in the squad? Uh, a potential free transfer spot, I guess, if Fulham really wanted to, to exploit that? Obviously, the free agents list is out there. I've been looking it up this morning, and Diego Costa is the the big name that jumps out. But I've you know watched Diego Costa in La Liga over the last couple of years, and I'm I'm not sure that that would add much apart from anger and yellow cards to Fulham's front line. Um, so so there's that. The one that jumps out to me is Alex Teixeira, who has been in China basically for for quite a long time now. I think you might remember him. He came up at Shakhtar Donetsk and he was brilliant. And Liverpool tried to sign him in about 2016, I would say, maybe 2015, 16. Um, they basically, I think they submitted a bid. The bid was accepted. And and then Teixeira basically just said no and went to Jiangsu Suning instead uh, and made loads of money. Um, he was there for for four years or so. Uh, and now he is not there anymore. There have been reports that he's signed for Al-Hilal, but there's nothing official. Um, I just think that if we were going to bring someone in, a 31-year-old who maybe has a little bit left to prove in, in European football on a six-month kind of Ryan Babel-esque deal. Now, the fact that he's been in China suggests to me that maybe his wages would be unaffordable and and therefore I wouldn't I wouldn't go absolutely blasting the doors off but if he was available at a relatively good price he plays across the forward line he can play in the 10 uh, the talent is definitely there he is an incredibly incredibly technical footballer um it wouldn't it wouldn't it would be a, a better pop I think than Diego Costa let's put it that way I would I, I would prefer this yeah, I, I, he he feels very much like one of those football manager uh, signings that you see him on the the list of free agents, and you just think, well, why the hell not? You know, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen? And you uh, you have to fight for the work permit, but it comes through, and then he scores all your goals, and you're a you're a hero, and you're offered the England job, and then you go win the Champions League with Woking. Um, that's that's the kind of uh, route I see um, when when looking at free transfers. But yeah, fingers cross jack you never know uh it, it does open up a few possibilities uh with, with the free transfer there okay we're going to take a little bit of break and we'll look ahead to saturday's game against west ham Part three of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy here with Peter and Jack. Let's look ahead then to Saturday's game against West Ham at the Cottage, a London derby. We all know how much Fulham enjoy playing those. Um, and Peter, West Ham have been on an unbelievable 
run of form. 1-3-1 against Aston Villa last night with uh, Jay Lings uh, coming back into the spotlight and uh, playing really well, getting a couple of goals. And and it's been pretty much all success for them, really, since the turn of the year. That one uh, blip against Liverpool, that defeat on, on Sunday where, where Liverpool were incredible. Shame they couldn't um, follow it up against Brighton. Bloody tosses. Um, but look, West Ham have been really, really good. And I think Fulham fans maybe went into that Leicester game thinking, oh, look, this is a game we can win because it's Leicester and we beat them earlier in the season. And probably we'd have a right to feel optimistic. It's West Ham and you were still like Fulham at home against West Ham. Yeah, that's a winnable game, but actually it's a really, really difficult game. Yeah, I mean, David Moyes has done such a superb job. I mean, for across the board, really, in terms of the players they, they've brought in, in terms of the way they're playing at the moment. Um, he's got his Marouane Fellaini and Thomas Suchek. Um, def- There's the, there it is, the comparisons here. <laughs> <laughs> But no, he's, he's been really, really effective. Uh, Craig Dawson's come in and has also made them solid. I mean, he was linked with Fulham, wasn't he, in, in, in the summer? There was interest there. And he's, he's done really well in, in the absence of uh, it's a job, I think. Um, you know, they, they're creating chances from, from all sorts of areas. And Mike Michael Antonio's come back in after a slight injury absence and has been superb. Like, he's such an important player to them. And there's quality all around, really, their, their attacking line. Jesse Lingard, obviously, with his debut. Uh, last night was scored two goals. He looks like he's got a point to prove. Um, they're playing to the stat, the, the caliber of the squad they've got now. Um, and what they're, they're fifth in the table at the moment. They're two points behind uh, Liverpool. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's it's going to be a tough challenge for for Fulham. Um, I mean, the, the, the encouraging thing is how they played at the London Stadium. Um, Fulham really should have got a point. We all know that from from Bookman's Panyanka penalty, and hopefully he'll feel like he has a, a point to prove in in, in this fixture. Um, but you know, for most parts of that game, Fulham were, were, were very much in it, and I, I'm sure we'll see the same. It's just whether they can have that quality, and what West Ham have showed is that they do have it. I mean, to beat Villa in the way they did last night is, you know, it's it's it, it shows that their form is not. Um, out of the ordinary, you know, they, they are a good team and this is the area, this is the half of the table that they will be competing in this year. And, um, but Fulham need to win. I mean, we, we can't, there's no buttering it up. There's no, there's no second guessing it. There's no, yes, they're competitive. They, they do need to win now. And, um, and the home games have got to count. Obviously last night, all five games, all five games, I think were five games, uh, all of them were uh, away victories. So whether that comes into it, who knows, but, uh, you know, there's Fulham need, to win the game and it's, it's going to be a tough ask yeah I'm, I'm worried about Jesse Lingard basically Millie rocking all over our defence at the weekend um, look they haven't they've lost one game as you say that Liverpool game since the 6th of December that's two months they've lost one game in all competitions which is a, you know a frankly quite incredible run um, and and yeah it's basically just a side that seems to be really well balanced really well put together uh, it hasn't kind of changed all that much, although I thought that Moyes was really clever yesterday doubling up on Jack Grealish with Ryan Fredericks and Vladimir Kufal down that right-hand side. Um, and and they basically pocketed him until he went to the other side and ran up against Saad Ben Rama, who does almost no tracking back. Um, at, which point, at which point he changed it and brought Jared Bowen on. So it was a... It just seems like Moyes has, has this team exactly where he wants them. And he's kind of one of those old school managers who's always been quite good. And and I kind of say this because 
I think that period at United where, where United weren't very good has kind of painted this gigantic tarnish over his reputation. Obviously, there's the Sunderland bit, but I think we've seen by now that Sunderland were unsavable. It didn't matter who was at the helm. Um, but everywhere else he's been, he's just done a really solid, quite good job. And, and it continues at West Ham, who who are now punching perhaps above the weight of where people said they would be. But in Rice and Susek, and trust me, it pains me deeply to compliment Declan Rice. Um, but, you know, it, <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a lovely midfield pivot that, you know, is exactly what it's doing. It gives the three in front for most games the, you know, ability to basically run on and create chances. Antonio there has shown that he is basically the all-round forward, that, that basically all teams are hoping for. He can hold play up well. He can get in behind he can finish he's got it all and and in that and the three behind them that rotate so you know that's a now with Lingard in there it's Ben Rama Lingard Yarmolenko Lanzini Fornals Bowen they have so many options in there who can come in and and all do a job in the different roles so I think that basically Moyes has this squad almost exactly where he wants them and Fulham are going to have to pull something out of the bag to get a result here now they're not infallible you stretch the imagination. These aren't players that you look at and go, there is no way that Fulham can get anything here. But with the with the form they're in and the way they're playing, then I, I think it's going to take something reasonably special for Fulham to, to pull a result out of the bag here. And, and as Peter said there, we need it. So Peter, uh, does Parker go uh, four at the back, uh, full attack f- for this one? I mean, I joke, but he does need to potentially look at doing something a bit more drastic because as you say, you just have to win and the draw's not really going to save us anymore. Even even that, it's, it's three points really or bust kind of territory now for Fulham. I think Declan Overreed should come back into the team. I think it was unfortunate to drop out considering the way he has played. I think the thing with Declan Overreed and what he offers and Kenny Tete, Tete doesn't necessarily um, is the fact that I know we, we talk about playing in a four, but it's very much full and play with a four with the ball and then five without it. Like that's still, there's still the way they're doing things. It's when they're not on top on games that they get trapped in the five. Deckard Overeed is the player that, which we saw against West Brom in that first half, who was playing, who does play very high. He wants to score goals. He wants to get into those dangerous areas and has really thrived off running off Mitrovic, especially um, in those attacking areas. So, uh, he, he does have to play to his attacking strengths, but at, this, at the same time, I'm 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 naturally a cautious sort of person anyway. But um, <laughs> um, you, you, we've got to bear in mind the threats that West Ham pose. I mean, we've just described it there. I mean, we, I mean, West Ham are not Brazil of the 1970s, but you know they're they're a really good team and they do have a lot of good, good attacking threats. And it's about getting that balance right. And Fulham haven't quite got it right of late. And I think I think you've got to bring Bobby back into the team. Just the goals he brings and the attacking threat from that side. It just, it just gives them more balance. And, and you know what, maybe, maybe they should try and stick more with a four than a five and try and encourage Bobby to sit that bit higher. Um, it would depend on, on, on how West Ham themselves set up too. But um, for sure, I think this is, this is, this is a game that you can, Fulham now are almost entering territory where they need to take slightly more risks. Um, as you say, um, the flip side, of course, you don't want to concede after 10, 15 minutes and then you've got what we had against Leicester. So, yeah, the bottom line is they need to find a way to win. And if that means switching to a four and giving them more license to attack, then absolutely they need to do it. I think it's more about stiffening the midfield. You know, we've seen whoever plays in that 10, be it Lingard, who was brilliant, be it Lanzini, be it Fornals, whoever's going to play there, it, you know, will will kind of make a midfield three with Rice and Susek. And we've seen that Susek is, is going to 
kick on, move forward and be part of the goals. In fact, I think only Bruno Fernandes scored more goals from midfield this season, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And and what I what I want, I, I agree with you completely that Bobby Reed should come back into the side, but I think we need three in the middle there. I would be playing in this game Angisa Lamina and Harrison Reed. You know, stiff in that midfield, play Lookman and Bobby Reed off Mitrovic up top, allow one of the midfield three, and it can rotate as to who it is between Lomina and Angisa to, to get forward and and try and support. Um, and also, you know, you keep that that option that Bobby can tuck in if we're under the cosh. But I think we need to kind of stiffen the middle because we're getting overrun. And I, I, I really worry about Susek in particular, just absolutely having the run of the midfield. Yeah, I'm worried about Suchek as well. He seems to score every single game, but like is nowhere near the top of the scoring charts. And I don't really understand it. He just always seems to have a goal in him. Um, I mean, Jack, just before we finish the podcast today, I just wanted to get your thoughts on Fulham's position and... Look, it's it. You look at the table and it's bleak. It's eight points up to Burnley. Uh, also, Newcastle eight points ahead. Brighton now ten points ahead, and maybe Wolves are the only other team in contention. You would say, but you know they just beat Arsenal on Tuesday, and I just don't see them getting dragged into it. Can Fulham stay up? Because there is a lot of talk on Twitter, and it's it's getting me down. I think there's a lot of people that just want to say it's over. It's over. It's done. Fulham can't stay up. There's no way we can stay in this division. It's all completely finished. There is 17 games left. And I still want to believe that a run of three wins on a bounce, and I know that's difficult, means that Fulham are back in contention again. But also the definition of madness is just expecting over and over again something different to happen. Yeah, I keep watching Fulham and the same things happen over and over again. And I genuinely am struggling to see where the next wins come win is coming from so I'm conflicted I was just interested to get your thoughts on it because it is bleak but is it over oh no it's not over it's not over to the fat lady sings and and ultimately if Fulham are within three points of Newcastle on that final day Fulham can stay up right that's as simple as that you, you go into that final day within three points of Newcastle and you can overtake them instead unless of course both of you are in the relegation zone but that's a little bit by the by so if you if you look at it like that, we've got a game in hand on Newcastle and Burnley, who it's against, right? You know, you win that game, it's five points to Newcastle and Burnley then. And and suddenly all you need is one more result to go your way and and, and stay in it. And and that's what I completely get about Scott's not dying thing, right? What I do think is, and, and you've just said it there, that madness is watching the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And at the moment, I don't think that Fulham are going to get that result unless we see a change in some sort of ability to to create good goal-scoring opportunities, more good goal-scoring opportunities that Fulham can put away. And, and if that happens, then maybe things start to change because... As Peter said, it's not like we've been bullied by anyone. It's not like we are not competitive in these in most of these games. I would argue that we weren't really competitive last night, but that's the first time in a while, I would say, that we haven't been competitive. And and with all that in mind, you're, you're, like you say, it only takes a couple of results to go your way. What I think has happened this weekend and this, this, this week is that we've seen Fulham miss two golden opportunities to 
to kind of catch up on the teams around us. And we've been punished for it, not only by our own results, but by the teams around us. You're, you're Brighton winning, getting six points off, off Liverpool and Tottenham, I think shows you how quick things can change, right? But Brighton have also been threatening to be better than they are for the entire season. I don't think that's necessarily the case with Fulham, you know? It, and and I think that there's the capability to do that, sure. But I can't see anything changing in that regard until we start creating more you know, patterns of play, basically, in, in the final third. I keep coming back to it, but but creating more goal-scoring opportunities based on the fact that, you know, when was the last time you saw a cutback? That's, that's, what, I would, that's what I would say. And, you know, we haven't, <laughs> we haven't created those opportunities that, that, the, that used to create good, healthy goal-scoring opportunities. That for them. We're, we're snatching at snapshots. We're, we're looking at long ranges. And, and it goes back a little bit to last season where Fulham were looking for moments of individual brilliance to bail us out rather than actual you know, team play in the final third. And and I think that's a worry. And it shows that in a division where you don't have better players than pretty much the rest of the division, then you can't rely on that quite as much. We can't just rely on Lookman beating five players and scoring a goal or setting one up for, for Mitrich. We have to look at more things like the first goal against West Brom, where we play to everybody's strengths and allow those moments to come. And I think those moments will come if Fulham start to to create more and impose themselves more upon teams because I think we have the players to do it. And so, yeah, no, this isn't over by any stretch of the imagination, but I would say that something has to change if Fulham are going to stay up. A really good quote from Joachim Anderson on Instagram last night said, uh, we are all together in this. Keep the faith, believe and desire to improve. We are ready to climb mountains. We are ready to show we are real men. Let's fucking go, guys. <laughs> Hashtag C-O-Y-W. I mean, Peter, I, I love I love that kind of message. And Yoakam and Anderson does seem to be a real leader within this squad. You know, you are in the ground. You are seeing this a little bit more directly than we are kind of through the lens of a television camera. Do you still believe that Fulham can get out of this? Of course, you were also part of Bournemouth's story last season where they didn't quite manage to, to escape from relegation, although did come very, very close and did everything they could on the final day. You know, do, do you think this is over? No, it's not over yet. No, absolutely. I think um, when, when I look back at, at Bournemouth last year, I felt there were, there, for, a, for a longer period of time, there were games in which they weren't competitive, in which they were defensively vulnerable, in which they weren't creating even any opportunities and it felt like the writing was on the wall a bit. They did rally towards the end. I, th- I was just thinking that the most encouraging game was just before football stopped uh, due to the pandemic, which is when they went to Anfield and they lost 2-1. I thought, wow, Bournemouth were in this game. This is a game they could have got something out of. Now, Fulham's been like that consistently for the last few weeks, you know, and I, I think that's probably the most encouraging thing. Um, and, and as you said, that the noise, that, that sort of, it's easy to say those things. Of course, it's easy to say those things, but... I don't get the impression yet that it's that this team is suddenly fearing the worst. They're looking over their shoulders. They're thinking, what, what happens to, to me next? That hasn't come yet. But my worry is that the longer this run goes on, the more that's, more, that's going to be more likely to happen. And I think from the play we saw against Leicester in the second half, late in the second half, maybe there were signs of that. Maybe. That's my concern. That's kind of the first time I thought, okay, maybe it's starting to impact things a little bit. Now, a win changes that. A win in the next couple of games changes that. It, it, it instills that belief and that competitiveness. But if you start to see a run of games where that competitiveness goes, then, then yeah, it becomes a bit more of a concern. But, you know, as, as I said earlier in the podcast, 
longer the windless run goes on, the harder it's going to be, especially psychologically. And and that's that can end things early. But we're not done yet. There's still a few games. There are lots of games to go. And, you know, especially when I compare to Bournemouth, there are more encouraging signs at this point. Obviously, the difference, Bournemouth had more points on the board. So, yeah. Swings and roundabouts. Okay, well, we'll see what happens uh, against West Ham on Saturday. If you'd like an opposition for you, do check out the Fulhamish YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, Don Betts uh, will be doing a West Ham preview uh, in the next day or so. Uh, all we need to do today is name the podcast. So, Jack, what are you thinking today? There were some brilliant ones. And I, although I was aggressively tempted by Tom Ford's Brendan Rodgers Parker, I think it might be a little bit graphic for the, for the graphic, shall we say. So uh, we can <laughs> go with Sammy Fine Silvers lacking when attacking. Very, very nice. Uh, well, we'll see what happens on Saturday. Uh, the pod will return on Sunday evening, looking back at that West Ham game. And please, 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 please. Let us be talking about a win, but uh, we will see what happens. Uh, 5.30 kickoff. I believe it's on Sky Sports, uh, but do double check that. But I believe that's where the game is at. Jack Collins, thank you very much for being on the pod today. Thank you for having me, Sammy. And Peter Rutzler, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Sammy. And let's hope for a good result on uh, on Saturday. We will be back on Sunday. Have a good weekend. Cover your whites. Good whites.